Chuck, we're back. Another podcast, Real Talk with Chuck and Pam. How you doing over there? I'm great. How are you? Doing just peachy, getting all my yard work done. So I am a happy camper. And believe it or not, seeing a lot of movies too. Oh, you and me both. A lot of movies. I wish that a lot of the movies were better though, you know? And you, I got you to admit last week that, you know, you in fact are missing the Hollywood product. I never thought that I would say that, but I I am. I am. I I love independent films. I love what they do, what they stand for, how they begin. Um, But I tell you, the, the differences, I feel like the independent films are all such downers except for some of the mainstream studio films that we've been able to see recently. And two of them are kids' movies, Scooby and Trolls. There is one, though, that's coming out next week. We can't talk about it yet, though. We're under embargo. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about that film next week. They're just, you know, not. I don't mind the fact that most independent film films are serious, or as you say, downers. Uh, you know, that has always shown how lately, how the studios in Hollywood don't want to deal with mature or potentially, you know, upsetting subject matter. Uh, And that's where the independent film has become the refuge of these. Uh, But it's just a sense also of production values. Uh, The way films are put together, there's just such a distinct difference. And also the pacing, I think you and I have mentioned, within independent films and Hollywood product, that is just... I don't know if I'm not used to it, because now I'm watching a steady stream of it, that I will get used to it. But there's definitely a difference in quality, and that's why I think I'm always so excited when I discover uh, one that is a little bit of a gem uh, amongst all this, because like, aha, I've been kind of suffering through a lot of product, now we found a good one. Right, I, I would agree with that, and I did admit the fact that the production value isn't as good as it is with studio films. So I'm looking forward to going back and hearing people smack their lips and crunch their, their popcorn with an open mouth and that type of thing. Are, are you missing it so much that you would go back and actually be open-minded and almost enjoy a Marvel movie? You know what, right now, I, I wanna see Superman and Batman. That's how <laughs> desperate I am. Well, it's interesting you say that because a piece of news broke just a couple hours ago that is very intriguing. I know you will have no idea what I'm talking about. Zero. And I know that, you know, if I tried to tell you about this, I'll be accused of mansplaining something to you. <laughs> True. But I am referring to the Justice League Snyder cut. The Justice League film, which came out two years ago and did not do what it was supposed to in many ways, that was a movie that was completed by uh, Josh Whedon after Zack Snyder had to leave it because of personal troubles. His daughter committed suicide, which obviously he could not focus on the film. Uh, And after Justice League came out and crashed and burned, he said that there were many scenes that he had shot, other things that he had done that weren't in the cut that we saw, and that he had them, and that he had a cut of the film that was complete. This became a urban legend of sorts, a a geekdom kind of holy grail that people were constantly talking about and asking, will we ever see this? Will we ever see this? It was announced today that on HBO Max in June 2021, we will see this. Apparently, they're going to take the Justice League film uh, along with additional footage that he has and that they will complete that footage with special effects. He's calling back certain actors within the film to do certain scenes and voiceovers. And the Justice League film is either going to be a four-hour movie 
or six one-hour episodes that interconnect. So in a very, very odd, weird type of situation, this director gets back and go, gets a chance to go back and redo things, which I cannot think of a precedent for this. That's, that's incredible. And I love Josh Whedon. I think he is an incredible director. So I don't know if I could do a four-hour movie of this topic, but I could do six one-hour episodes. It's going to be on HBO Max, so you can hit the pause. So, you know, you walk away. Yeah, yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. But that that's something else completely altogether. We got movies to talk about. What do you want to start with, Pamster? Oh, gosh. You know what? Let's, let's start with a couple that we've reviewed very briefly on WCIA's CI Living as well as The Morning Show. Um, let's start off with a trip to Greece, and that's kind of more your cup of tea than it is mine, but I will certainly add in my two cents. Yeah, the trip to Greece, the fourth in the trip films uh, that feature Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon. They are all focused around a trip that these two comics take, a six-day trip each time, to various countries to sample the cuisine as well as the culture. Uh, the trip dealt with restaurants and culture of the United Kingdom. Uh, then there was the trip to Italy the trip to Spain, and now we are going to Greece. And along the way, these two banter back and forth about whatever happens to come to mind, some of it referring to the culture where they're at, some of it referring to the food that they're eating, some of it referring to nothing at all, just tangents and stream of conscious things that often end up being rather pointed toward each other in a good-natured way, but also, I think, quite funny, riddled with celebrity imitations and also just their, uh, their thoughts on what might be happening in pop culture at that time. You know, none of these movies have a screenwriter credit to them, and that tells you just how improvised and off the cuff they are. And in this latest one, uh, Trip to Greece, I felt that uh, it was a little slow starting, but after a few minutes, they really started to click again, and, and I thought it was just magical. I'm wondering why it's more my cup of tea. I bailed, that's why. <laughs> yeah, D have you seen the other movies, though? I have. I have. And what was it about this one that was so off-putting to you? I don't know that it was off-putting. It was benign and, to me, dull, and it didn't have that same magic that, you know, the first one lacked a little bit with the pacing. Again, with the pacing. The second one and the third one had me. I enjoyed every moment of it. I enjoyed their banter back and forth and the sub-stories of their personal lives interwoven into it. With this one, though, I noticed a difference with their, their silly impressions in the very beginning just kind of bored me. It just went on too long. And I also noticed, and I didn't check to see whether or not there's any accuracy with this thought, um, I'm wondering about the editor. This film compared to the other films, I didn't feel like it captured the essence of Greece and it didn't capture the food like I wanted it to in the beginning. Maybe because I did bail on it after 25 minutes, maybe it gets better as you go through. But I feel like that really captured my sensory attention with the other films where it didn't with this one. Well, you should have definitely stuck with it, I think. We do get more of their personal stories that do kind of, that do creep into the trip that they take. And it ends up being quite poignant. And it, it made me I, I thought it was quite beautiful at the end when we were dealing with Coogan's personal story as well as the way Michael Winterbottom just kind of encapsulated where they were. It just had a magical quality to it. With, with your recommendation and that it does pick up after I bailed on it, I will give it another shot. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Because 
you know, I'm asking you this because you asked me to sit through Military Wives, okay? So a movie you like, so I did that for you, so you gotta do this for me. And in all honesty, in the very beginning and throughout the film, I thought this is kind of a little hokey and contrived. However, this is based on a true story. And as with any movie that says it's based on a true story, you wonder how much of it is true, how much of it is not. A good portion of this movie is true. It's about a group of women on a military base whose significant others, partners, are in the military. They are the wives of these soldiers. And Kristen Scott Thomas plays the colonel's wife, Kate, and she is a bit of a control freak. But it's time for her to loosen the reins a little bit and let go of them and pass the baton over. Were you, were you able to uh, relate to that role at all? Oh, you are so fucking funny. To pass the reins on to Lisa, played by Sharon Horgan. If you don't know who she is, look her up. She is a great comedic act- actress. Obviously, the two personalities are very, very different, and they see the women's group in two totally different ways, but they have to partner up together even though they butt heads and figure out how to bring these women together as basically a distraction while their partners are away. They form a a choral group, and they really have awful, awful talent. It makes me look good, which for those of you who know me know I cannot sing or dance at all. It is definitely horrific. <laughs> it's horrific, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'll sing Skyfall if anyone wants. You can message me and I will sing Skyfall for you or Happy Birthday, whichever one you want. There is one person in the group that shines and you know what? This is a predictable film. You know what's going to happen. They compete in something. You know they're going to have their ups and downs and their trials and tribulations. I think the strength of this film comes in the um, depiction or the portrayal of how anxiety-filled these these wives' lives are as their partners go off to war. Fear of the unknown, and especially when you have children, or even if you're sending your children off to war. Um, There are a lot of those, I think, underlying stories that really were the heart and soul of this film, and those were just gently buried beneath the surface of something that was rather lighthearted. I enjoyed the film. I think that you need to go into this film knowing that it is based on a true story, stick around for the credits because as the credits roll, you get to meet these real people and the thousands of women who are members of this choral group. It's pretty cool. Well, you know, I noticed that the director is the same guy who directed The Full Monty, and this thing follows that uh, whole structure almost to a T. You know, I, I, I like the movie. I, I wasn't up and down about it. I didn't jump up and down about it. But I think this is the type of movie that, as you say, while it's predictable, I've always felt that very talented performers can take something predictable and make it seem fresh and save it. And Kristen Scott Thomas definitely does that. As done Sharon Horgan, I've always liked her. She had a great role in Game Night a couple years ago. Uh, the, the much smarter woman who was stuck with this blind date of adult idiot guy, and she skewers him throughout, and she is hilarious. She's also done uh, some TV that I really like as well. So I think the effort of those two made this worthwhile for me, helped me stick it out until the end where where things really did pick up. So no, I didn't hate this. I actually, actually kind of liked it. Yeah, one one of the shows that I really like of Sharon Horgan's is Catastrophe. I don't know if you've seen that. I couldn't remember the name of it. Yes, that is really good, really smart. That's a lot of fun. And I think that really showcases her her wit and her delivery. No doubt about it. So, okay, so we, uh, I'm I'm glad that you gave Military Wives a a shot. See, I'm open-minded. 
I'm open-minded. I just want to let you know that. You okay? Oh, good. Okay. I, I had to process that for a second. Thank uh-huh. you. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> let's talk about, and I'm going to let you introduce the wrong Missy because you are a huge Adam Sandler fan. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say I'm a huge Adam Sandler fan, but I've never gotten to the point where I've hated him or started to beat him up as so many people did in the past few years. You know, with him, you know what you're going to get with his films. Uh, and because of that, that's why he is able to surprise us at times when he does something like uh, Punch Drunk Love or Uncut Gems or Spanglish even. Yeah, the you know, with Adam Sandler's films, you know what you're going to get. And even though he's not in this film called The Wrong Missy, which premiered on Netflix about a week ago, uh, it does follow the same formula as most of his films. It stars David Spade as this schmuck who works at a credit card company who he wants a promotion desperately, but he's suffering because he just had his fiancée, played by Sarah Chalk from The Scrub Show, dump him. He's kind of down in the mouth, but there's going to be a retreat in Hawaii where he or invite a significant other, which he does, but boy, it's a big mistake. Uh, let's listen to a clip from the film and we'll get a little bit more into what happens. There he is! Dude, spoke to Winstone all about you. Totally teed you up. Fuck. Fuck? I screwed up so huge. What? The girl in my room is not who I thought she was. Well, that's your fault for trying to get to know her. That's on you, bud. No, remember that crazy blind date I had a while ago? This whole time I thought I was texting my dream girl? I'm texting that girl! Lauren Lapkus, who is the wrong Missy. A blind date from hell that uh, the uh, Spade character thought that he had gotten rid of, but instead he accidentally invites her to Hawaii, and boy, she makes all the wrong impressions. This woman is an absolute nightmare. If there's a situation in which you can be embarrassed in, she's going to embarrass you even worse than you absolutely thought, and Spade, of course, suffers throughout the entire 90 minutes dealing with this woman. This movie is completely indefensible. It's silly. It's crude. You know exactly where it's going, and I didn't care. I laughed. I mean, I laughed on more than one occasion. A couple of really big belly laughs. Uh, And really, I think it's the kind of lowbrow, escapist, light comedy that I needed while sitting in the house for as long as I have. You know, I went into it wondering what am I in for because it was Adam Sandler. And I got to say, it fits right in with all of the Happy Madison productions, which is not a bad thing. I enjoyed it. I thought it was ridiculous and raunchy. Yet my daughter and I continued to be glued to the TV and watched the entire thing. And we laughed our asses off in several parts. So, yeah, a a welcome distraction. It's fun to laugh. You need to laugh. And I also like the fact that Lauren Lapkus, the wrong Missy, not the right Missy, is from Chicago. In fact, she is a graduate of DePaul University and has done some acting and comedic work in Chicago. So that was a kind of cool little thing, too. Check it out. Just know what you're getting. It's Adam Sandler. It's Happy Madison Productions. Exactly right. And Chuck, I I love to chat about a horror film with you or oh, God. a psychological thriller. Are you, are you ready for this one? Well, if you want to call it a horror, it's a horror film, but not in the traditional sense. It is horrible. There's no question. It's horrible. What we are talking about is the movie Inheritance, starring Simon Pegg and Lily Collins plays Lauren, and she is from a very high-powered, wealthy family. She is the district attorney for New York City. 
and she obviously has a lot of power at her disposal. Her younger brother is a hopefully two-term congressman. He's running for his second term. Her father is a banker. Uh, Her father dies unexpectedly, and after the funeral, there's the reading of the will. We know right away that her baby brother is the golden child because he gets 20 mil and she only gets 1 million. Now, that wouldn't upset me if I got $1 million, but apparently that is a pittance. And she also gets something a little more. She inherits a set of keys and a thumb drive. She looks at this thumb drive and realizes that she has another problem on her hands. And that problem is in the form of Simon Pegg's character, Morgan. Morgan is buried in a bunker in their backyard. Um, she ends up talking with Morgan, um, and of course you think, well, why doesn't she just release him right away? Well, she's been warned by her father in that thumb drive not to do so, or to have her, the secrets stay buried. What that secret is, is that a person, is that something that happened, we find out. Okay, there are a lot of problems with this movie. Oh my God. Oh my God. (laughs) But, but. I have to say, when it was the interaction between um, Morgan, Simon Pegg's character, and Lauren, it was chilling. Simon Pegg is incredible. Chillingly bad. Um, We think of him as a comedic actor. He can do a lot more than that. And I tell you, the tone of this film, when you are thinking about the fact that this person has been buried in a bunker, chained around the throat as well as the hands for 30 years, I mean, that would truly be your worst nightmare. I had to get up and walk away from it a couple of times because that is truly, I'm claustrophobic. That is a fear of mine. So to me, I think it it was well done with eliciting that, I guess, taking advantage of your worst nightmare. Lily, Lily Collins' character, she couldn't pull off being a district attorney. She just didn't have that power and confidence that somebody... Um, needs in order to have that position. The young guy, Chase, I think his name. Chase Crawford. Yeah. Yeah. They're both. Will- they're both too young for the roles. They just. And I don't think they had the money behind this film that they needed. Just even in, in wardrobe. I mean, the ill-fitting suit that Chase had. He looked like he went to Daddy's closet and pulled that out. Um, it just. It lacked a little bit with with that um, aspect to take away the believability. Well, I got up and walked away a couple times as well, but for completely different reasons, because I couldn't believe what I was watching. This movie uh, is directed by a guy named Vaughn Stein, who did another horrible film called Terminal with Margot Robbie a couple years oh, ago. Oh, that was awful. It was awful. That was but, unwatchable. Well, this, to me, almost was unwatchable, too. You know what I noticed about this film? And I counted them. There are six different plot strands in this film, and almost none of them are developed. It's like this whole thing is mentioned and then dropped. Like the fact that dad had a mistress and Collins discovers she's got a half brother. And that's all we get. No ramifications from that whatsoever. There's an inkling that there's a scandal with the congressional campaign and that's not developed. Uh, She's involved in this big case with the district attorney's office and it's going to impact her somehow and that's dropped. It's well, like, and can can you imagine a district attorney like popping in for court? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it it was like a side job for her. You yeah. know, it, it was just such an un. It, this is an example of an undeveloped screenplay. There were so many ideas that were dropped in there and then just walked away from that. That I found it just maddening. And the other thing I found maddening is, is that I timed it. I looked at this. It takes us thirty five minutes 
before we figure out why the Simon Pegg character is where he is. And that's way too long. And you go back and you look at the little things, the, the, the distractions that are put up there before we can get to that point, they could have been excised uh, immediately. And in that mind, that's an example of very poor screenwriting. Especially, and also the fact that you know, we, we use these great lines in, in, the, in the film like, I can't tell you. And, no, I, uh, it's a secret I can't bear. And, you know, just these cliched lines. And again, this was, to me, like we were talking about at the beginning of the show, the difference between a well-polished studio film that goes through the process again and again and again before it goes before the cameras and something that I think was done rather quickly that didn't have the time put into it that it should have. And what did you think of the music? Oh, Jesus Christ, the music. <laughs> The music. I hate when music is constantly there because the filmmaker doesn't trust that I'm going to figure out how to feel. That soundtrack, I think the film runs an hour and 51 minutes. I think the soundtrack was on for an hour and 48 minutes. It was constant. It was irritating. Thank you for bringing that up so that my blood pressure could raise again. I appreciate it, Pam Pop. I just so enjoy watching your entire face be flushed. Hey, I'm old. When you start wasting my time, you know, this is time I'm not getting back. Okay. I understand. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so did you did you feel like, um, how about Water Lily Jaguar? Let's talk about that one. That one I don't think was a waste of your time at all. And that's a nice independent film that we we were like surprised by. What an odd film. And what a, a movie I really liked. Uh, this is directed by a woman named Laura Walters, I believe. Her first time uh, behind the camera and, and writing. And it is, I wouldn't say it's a perfect movie, but boy, it's an ambitious film. And an intriguing film, and it deals with a guy named, uh, played by James Legros, who, with his mustache and glasses, I kept thinking was Guy Pierce in this movie. Didn't he really look like him? He did. He did. Uh, but he did, he made the role his own. And this guy is a writer, and he's kind of stuck right now as far as what to do with his next book. And then he gets an idea, a strange idea, in which he finds out about a woman a skeleton that has been found in the La Brea tar pit. And he wants to research this whole skeleton and write a novel, a backstory about this woman who has fallen uh, to this gruesome death thousands and thousands of years ago. He becomes obsessed with this whole idea to the point where it starts to affect his behavior. And he's married to an artist played by Mira Sorvino, who, boy, you know, I always like seeing her in a good role. It's been so long. And his behavior towards his new project starts to affect their marriage in an odd way as well. It's a strange movie, but I liked it because of what it talks about as far as how art is constructed, how art is made, and how the subject of whatever art you're making, whether it's a painting, a film, a book, whatever it is, how it can somehow consume the artist, how it takes over you in ways that you don't anticipate. The ending is a little wide open, which I kind of liked, but it doesn't point to a good ending for this guy. I mean, he seems to have some sort of resolution with this story he's taken on, but I'm not convinced that he's ever, ever going to be happy. And of course, again, that I think speaks to artists as well. I think that the good artists are the ones who are always suffering from something, always suffering to express themselves in some unique way. And Water Lily Jaguar, I think, really looks at that whole problem in an interesting, interesting manner. Well, I, I loved the ending. I, I don't think it was quite as ambiguous as, as you feel that it was. But I think that one of the, I can't remember exactly what, how the line went, something like, 
I'm never appreciating the the moment that I'm in and always looking to what's next. So, exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, and I I thought so many of us do that, and I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things that going through this quarantine and you know actually taking a look at our surroundings and maybe even enjoying our families and and the moments that we're we're in now, we've slowed down a little bit. And I think that is something that I appreciate that I've been forced to do really, you know? Right. Appreciate those moments that you're in. Yeah. So I I enjoyed it. I I really, I love James LaGrosse. I didn't really know much about him until I saw him in Phoenix, Oregon, one of the movies, the indie movies I had recommended a few weeks ago. And Mira Sorvino had such a lull in her career, um, unfortunately. Well, we know Um, why. Yes, we do. And it's wonderful to see her. She's a really talented actress, and I love seeing her in this role. Yeah. Um, And it's... It's kind of like a slow burn. You're you're intrigued by you know what's happening, what's consuming each of them, and and how do they respond to one another? And and this water lily jaguar Indian princess affects them both in different ways, both for negative and positive. And that's the other thing I like about the film. It's only ninety minutes. Yeah. We're not wasting any time here. It goes from one thing to another. The progression is is very. I wouldn't say it's fast, but it's steady, and it keeps you engaged throughout. So, uh, yeah, I like this one much more than I thought I would. Yeah, I I was pleasantly surprised. And you can see this one on, I believe, Amazon Prime as well as other digital platforms. Um, Gosh, I think that that takes care of most of the new releases. Lucky Grandma, I did see. It was an interesting little flick. You can see that through the musicboxtheater.com in Chicago. Uh Uh-huh, and I would like to mention Point Defiance. Is another independent movie coming out this Friday, one that you should skip, and that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> let's let's briefly go over the DVDs that are being released. I know that um, Emma, one of your favorites from this year, is now out on DVD. As is The Way Back, uh, my favorite film of the year. It's out on DVD as well. And Buffaloed, which is a little film that... See this movie, seek it out. You can thank me later. And if you're from the Buffalo, New York area, you are going to love, love, love it. If you're not from Buffalo, you'll enjoy it. How about that? Okay, good enough. Uh, This week, this past week, I should say, uh, we lost the great Fred Willard, comedian, a guy who, whenever I would see his name in the credits, I would perk up immediately because I knew that even if the movie ended up not being good, any scene that he was in was going to be something. Daring moment, a funny moment. He was a true wild card. You never, ever knew what was going to come out of his mouth, uh, which made him perfect for the Christopher Guest mockumentaries, which had such a improvinistic feel to them. They kind of let him run, run riot on these. I know you must have had a favorite moment, Pam. What, what, does something come to mind? Um, yeah, you know, one of uh, he's been in so much recently, too. In fact, uh, just a day or two before he passed away, I remember saying to my daughter, oh, my gosh, he's in everything right now. Um, there's an upcoming series called Space Force. He's in that. And you know what role he plays in that? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and why that casting wasn't done before, I have no idea. <laughs> it's perfect. Oh, he's perfect in anything and everything that he does. But one of my favorites that I will always go back to, I've seen a million times, is Best in Show. Let's listen to a clip from Best in Show. 
Now, you know what would be funny? I don't know if they could do this, uh, uh, just an idea off the top of my head. Why did he put the blood on, put on one of those Sherlock Holmes hats and put a little pipe in his mouth? Are they ever allowed to do anything like that, dress up a dog in a funny way? Yeah, that's, uh, that's not quite what the uh, purpose of these shows But it would, I think it would really get the crowd going. You know, you know what I mean? The Sherlock Absolutely Holmes hat yes. with the pipe. I don't know if you can make it look like smoke's coming out of the pipe. I think that would be a little dangerous. <laughs> I'd get a kick out of it. How about you, Chuck? What's one of your favorites? Well, ironically, best in show would be my favorite as well. Really? Yes, yes. Uh, the moment in which he points out that in other countries these dogs would be killed and eaten um, every time kills me, just kills me. Not just his delivery of the line, but then the reaction of the guy sitting next to him is just absolutely priceless. <laughs> he truly is. He had a good run of it. 86 years old, I believe he was. Yes, yes. Yes, a very good career. And you can tell how much he was respected by all of the outpouring that has occurred uh, since his passing by his peers. Yeah, he will be missed. Yes, yes. Hey, you know what I miss? What? Hamilton Walkers. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. I'm hoping that maybe as things loosen up in the state, maybe they'll get some tables put outside, maybe get things up and running, at least on a partial basis. And if they do... I think uh, one of my first stops is going to be Hamilton Walker's downtown Champaign. Absolutely. And hopefully immediately following Hamilton Walker's opening up with that, I can head back to Champaign and stay with Sylvia at Sylvia's Irish Inn Bed and Breakfast at 312 West Green Street in Urbana. I miss Sylvia's cooking. I miss walking into that immaculate but comfortable home and calling it my home away from home. And looking at you now via Zoom, I know what else you miss. <laughs> what? Rod Sickler. <laughs> oh, Rod, Rod, Rod Sickler Salon. Uh, I know that he and other salons in the state, once they're open, will just be inundated, inundated with uh, people who need a trim, need a cut, need a dye. So I'm sure, though, that he'd be able to fit you in anyone who comes his way. Rod Sickler is the best as far as that's concerned. Absolutely. And Chuck, thanks for noticing. I, hey. I love your attention to detail. What are friends for? <laughs> Until next week, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. And please share it, share it, share it. And we're going to be having some great giveaways if you do share it. Thanks, guys. <laughs>